We're in Matthew chapter 21. If you want to take your Bibles and open them or tap in your app over to Matthew chapter 21. Um, so far, the events of the Gospel of Matthew have spanned several years. Now, most scholars place the events of Jesus' public ministry after his baptism in the years between 28 AD and 31 AD. It's a three to four year span. The last eight chapters that we're going to look at in the Matthew's Gospel span one week. So everything we've looked at so far spans three, three to four years. Now we're getting into a one-week period that's going to take up eight chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. So almost a little bit less than a third of the Gospel um, is going to be uh, in, this, in this last week of Jesus' ministry on earth. Uh, now, I'm going to say this, not the last week of ministry on earth, because he does appear after the resurrection, prior to his crucifixion and resurrection. So uh, Matthew is accustomed to taking events we've looked at this throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and grouping them together based upon content, not chronology, right? So chronology would mean that they come in timeline order, this happened, then this happened. Matthew doesn't do that. He kind of takes chronology and throws it out the window, and he says, well, this goes with this. I'll put them together, because he wants you to see a certain message. And just, I want to give you a timeline. This morning, we're going to cover a lot of verses, so hopefully you have a pen and take some notes. The notes will be online. Uh, and we're going to look at some overviews because this section is crucial to the gospel period. Um, but especially uh, as I was reading through Matthew's gospel, it's, it's a, the most important part. I think David said these are the most important verses, but I know he was just kidding because it's all important, um, of the gospel of Matthew. So uh, I'm going to be showing you one part of this introduction to the last week. And Lord willing, next week, David will be able to show you the next part or another part of this introduction. There's a lot to it. So uh, Matthew has... has did not group them by chronology. So I want to give you a chronology and, and kind of show you what's going on. There's a lot there. Um, so on a Friday, Jesus arrives in Bethany. Uh, on Saturday morning, we have a story that we're not going to cover where Mary anoints Jesus. That would have been on a Sabbath. On Sunday, which is where we're going to pick up today, which is the day after Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath was on Saturday. On Sunday... Jesus has this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He actually surveys the temple and then goes out to back to Bethany. On Monday, the next day, he goes in and he cleanses the temple. He curses a fig tree. Um, he has miracles and things that he does in the temple, and then he returns back to Bethany again. So you see, he's not staying in Jerusalem, the city. And there's reasons for that that we'll get into in just a little bit. On Tuesday, the disciples questioning the fig tree because they find that it's all withered. Um, he debates with leaders in the temple, um, and then, again, he goes back to Bethany. On Wednesday, there's not much recorded. Um, apparently, that's possibly when Judas arranged the betrayal. On Thursday, there was preparation for the Passover. After sundown, the Passover meal, which we call the Last Supper, um, the farewell discourse, and then the Garden of Gethsemane um, scene. And then on the Friday night after midnight, the betrayal and arrest, the Jewish trials, um, all that stuff being crucified and then buried in the tomb. So these are all the events that take place. That actually takes us through ch uh, chapter 20, end of chapter 27 with the burial um, and the, the guards at the tomb. So that's a, chrono a chronological timeline of the gospel of these last week that takes place as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Matthew's not going to do it in that order. So I want you to be mindful of that as we go through it, that what we're reading in Matthew is not 
like boom, 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 this is how it happened in order. Um, he's trying to get us to think about themes as they come together. So the passage we're going to look at this morning has three major movements to it. Um, there's the, the entry where he goes into Jerusalem. Matthew covers that. The second thing that he covers is um, the crowd from Galilee. And uh, I'm sorry, the, the, I'm sorry, the first section is the entry. The second one is the scene at the temple um, where he overturns the, the tables with the money changers. And then he has a confrontation with the religious leaders. So those are the three things that we're going to cover this morning. And according to this timeline, it was Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, when this entry to Jerusalem took place. So Jesus had just been outside of the city of Jerusalem, Gethsemane, which is it's still part of Jerusalem proper, but it's outside the gates. And we're going to look at his entry into Jerusalem. And I want you to take, uh, pay attention to three different groups of people here. The first one is the disciples. The second one are the crowds from Galilee. And the third one are the crowds from Jerusalem. So let's read this together. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two, sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Well, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, who, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So we have three groups of people in this passage, in this entrance. The first one is the disciples. And they're the ones that Jesus uses to carry out this specific event. Um, he makes an, an intentional grand entrance. They had just walked from Capernaum, and they were close to the city. Jesus did not need to ride on a donkey. As a matter of fact, the custom would have been to walk into the city for the Passover feast, not to be on any kind of burden, uh, beast of burden or animal. So the custom would be everybody would be walking. For Jesus to be on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey, is intentional. He chose to ride on the donkey to make a statement about who he is and about what he's about to do. And so he sends his disciples ahead and he said, listen, go to the city and as soon as you get there, you're going to see this donkey and a foal, just go get them. Now, thievery was not looked upon favorably in Jerusalem. So he said, if the person questions you, just tell them, okay, the master needs it, the Lord needs it, and they'll just give it to you. Now, we don't know if this was prearranged or not, or if this was just providence, um, you know, that God working behind the scenes in somebody's life, or if somebody had actually gone into the, the town ahead of time. Uh, it really doesn't matter. The disciples, what you'll notice about them is they just go and they do it. We don't actually find out from Matthew if the person struggled with them taking the animals. It's assumed that there would be a challenge because of Jesus' instruction. 
So that's the disciples. Jesus says, go do this. They just go and they do it and they bring back the animal. Now they're pretty excited at this point. Remember, they think Jesus is going to Jerusalem to usher in the kingdom of God. And they're going to have thrones and he's going to have a throne. And they're going to overrule, they're going to overthrow Rome. You know, that's their picture, very much so of what the Messiah would do. So anything that he says at this point, they're like, okay, we got it. And they just go and they do it. The second group is the Galilean crowd. Now the, the crowds from Galilee... In chapter 20, verse 31, it was just a crowd. By now, it's a very large crowd. The closer you get to Jerusalem, the more people you pick up along the way. So this huge crowd, and they're coming from the direction of Galilee. Most of them, many of them, I should say, would be from Galilee and would have seen all the miracles that Jesus had performed. They know this guy. Where a lot of the people who were in Jerusalem probably wouldn't know Jesus. Um, they ascribe to Jesus a title. Who do the crowds, this large crowd, very large crowd, who do they say that Jesus is? Anybody? What title do they give him? Prophet. All right, tuck that one in your cap. They certainly see him as both the Davidic role of the king and also of a prophetic role of Moses. And we're going to see that in just a little bit but they have not fully connected the dots of who he really is. They didn't say he was the Messiah. They called him the son of David, connecting him to the kingly line of David, and they called him a prophet, probably connecting him back to Moses, as we'll see. But they haven't quite put those together to say this is the prophet, high priest, king figure that we've been looking for in the Messiah. And then we have the Jerusalem crowd. Um, they want to know, who is this guy? He comes riding in on a donkey. There's people throwing branches and putting their coats on the ground. People are shouting in front of him and behind him. The disciples are just, Jesus isn't stopping any of this. He's planned this. He's coming in. Everybody's shouting, who is this guy coming into Jerusalem? What's going on? This is a big scene. Now, the, the crowd in Jerusalem uh, would not be just the natives of Jerusalem but those coming from all over for the Passover celebration. And, and the population of Israel is not really known, the exact population at this time. They, the, the estimates are like way out there. There's estimates on this low side that there were about 35,000 people living in Jerusalem. And then there's the high side of about 3 million people. I mean, that's a pretty big gap. Um, most put it somewhere between like the, the, the 50 and 90,000 people in Jerusalem at that time. Um, Matter of fact, one commentary came to this conclusion, that Jerusalem was a city of about 70,000 because in Revelation 11:13 it says that one-tenth of the city was swallowed up, and that was about, and it names off 7,000 people. So they use that verse from Revelations to say it was probably about, about 70,000 people that lived in Jerusalem. However, during the time of Passover, this crowd would grow to be two to three, four times the size. They would estimate about 250,000 people entering Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, let me give you a comparison. How many of you think that Watertown's a big city? Not at all, right? How about Syracuse? Eh, it's a city, right? Imagine fitting the entire population of Syracuse in Watertown on Arsenal Street. 
that's about the same proportions of what would happen in Jerusalem at that time. It's crazy. That's a lot of people. Um, have you ever been to the Olympics? You've experienced something like this then, right? Where a small town, the 1980 Olympics were in Lake Placid. Uh, Lake Placid has a population of about 3,000 people at that time. They anticipated it was about 50,000 visitors a day. It was a mess. And if you read the news articles, you'll find out how bad it was. Transportation was bad, food was bad, there wasn't enough lodging. This is also the situation in Jerusalem during the Passover. Not only did they need places to stay and food, but they also needed sacrifices for the temple, right? If you just traveled a week's journey or a, a, a two weeks journey to get to Jerusalem for the Passover, you didn't take animals with you for the sacrifices. You would need to buy the sacrifices. If you had other currency, you would need to exchange it because you wouldn't take currency that had the image of a pagan person on it into the temple. You would exchange it for one that was acceptable for the temple tax. All sorts of things had to take place. Logistics were crazy, but it was a great time for the markets. Um, so remember that as we get into the next section when Jesus goes into the temple. And as Jesus rides in on this donkey, it's a very intentional thing. He chose to be on the donkey. The people are calling him the son of David. He's being connected with a king. He's being connected with a prophet. There's a quote that Matthew gives us. And here's one of them. It's in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. And his dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Jesus' entry, and as people are crying out and as Matthew is pointing out, they're seeing him as the one who's going to come and establish a kingdom from sea to sea, who's going to see the enemies removed, who's going to see peace and the establishment of a kingdom in Jerusalem. It's an announcement of not only peace, but of hope for all of Israel. So the people are looking at him as a prophet, but Jesus is also pointing out that he is more, he's the long-awaited Messiah who's going to set up his kingdom, but not on this earth. And this kingdom will be ruled by the Messiah, and it will usher in a season of peace for the Jews only, right? No. For whom? For all the nations. We have to grab hold of that thought as well. So this is what the disciples were looking for. Remember, they're fighting about, king, about who's going to have thrones next to Jesus. This is what Israel had been looking for. So as they're entering this feast... They have this hope that their king is coming and they're going to finally be freed from this oppressor Rome who has been taxing them and giving them heavy burdens and taking their stuff from them and even killing them if they didn't like them. So not only was this the announcement of a prophet, but also of a king. Now another passage that might be connected to that could be Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 and 11. It says this, The scepter will not depart from Judah, and Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, or the staff from between his feet, 
until he whose right it is comes, and the obedience of the people belongs to him. He ties his donkey to a vine, and the colt of his donkey to a choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. So that Genesis passage um, is really foretelling even some more of what's going to happen with Jesus. When you start to see the imagery of the grapes and the blood, the, the supper he's going to have, he's going to be pulling this one in later on as well. So Matthew recorded that the disciples came back with two donkeys, the mother and the foal, right? The people put their robes on the donkeys, and then Jesus rode on them, it says. He rode on the robes, but he rode on the foal, on the colt. So why would you have two of them? Um, actually, there's a good explanation. To get a young colt who had not been ridden before to actually follow and come, the easiest way was to lead mom, and the foal would follow. So Jesus didn't actually ride on the mom, necessarily. Uh, we're, we're meant to believe that he rode on the colt, on the foal, and that the mom was just there to help lead along, to bring him down through the processional there. Um, so Jesus didn't ride both animals. He rode on top of the robes. That was that he rode on them. Um, so why is that detail in here? Um, well, riding on a donkey or a beast of burden is actually common for kings. Now, if you were thinking of a king entering, what would you think of him riding? Anybody? A horse, but not just any horse, right? What color horse? It's got to be a white horse, right? Yeah, it's got to be a white horse. It's got to be, you know, magnificent. Well, well, no, that would sometimes happen when they returned from battle. But when kings were appointed or anointed, they often rode on a donkey or a mule, a beast of burden. Matter of fact, this is what happened in um, 2 Kings 9. You can write this one down. Jehu um, is king of Israel, and he sits on um, a beast of burden, a mule, and he is brought in. Um, they put robes on the steps in which he walked on, so you have that, that kingly processional. The people cut down branches and put them on the road. Uh, so as, as they're presenting Jesus not only as the anointed one, but they're also presenting him as a king, and the people get it. They refer to him as the son of David. It's not just a link to his family tie, but the promise of the seed of David. We call this the Davidic covenant. Another verse to write down is 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm not going to be able to get into all of these today. This would be like a 16-hour sermon if we did. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7 is the Davidic covenant, where there was a promise made to David that someone from his throne, from his lineage, excuse me, would sit on the throne forever. That had not happened. It didn't happen with Solomon. Solomon, we thought, was, oh, it's going to be Solomon. He's going to get it right. Nope, nope. Solomon fails miserably. And it gets worse and worse and worse. So they're still looking for this king from the line of David who's going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. Um, so this is the, when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is um, the kingdom of, of David, the, the, um, the son of David, they're talking about this promised one who will come and rule over Israel. Now, there's some more connections here that I want to bring in. I hope I don't lose you in all this. There's a lot of hyperlinks that are bringing things together here. In Matthew 12, 42, Jesus referred to himself and the kingdom of God, and he said, something greater than Solomon is here. Not someone, but something greater than Solomon is here. He said, something greater than Moses is here, something greater than the temple is here, and something greater than Solomon is here. 
I'm going to nerd out for a second here. All right. In Matthew chapter uh, 21, verse 10, it says that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, who, who is this? Um, I want to actually point out to you that the word uproar is the same word that means shaken. And later on in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 27, verse 51, when the temple veil breaks and the ground shakes, it's the same word. Okay, so you can use that word shaken here. Jesus came in on a, on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey, there were branches. He was announced as king as he was coming into Jerusalem, and the earth shook from the noise um, the, from the crowd. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 38, we actually have the um, coronation of Solomon. Uh, the priest Zadok and the, Nathan, and, and the prophet Nathan and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down to had Solomon ride on King David's mule and took him to Gihon, which, by the way, is to the east of Jerusalem, just outside the, the gates. The priest Zadok took the horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and then they blew the ram's horn, and all the people proclaimed, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing the flutes and rejoicing with such great joy that the earth split open from the sound. Now, in the timeline, what happened just before Jesus entered into the Jerusalem? He was anointed by Mary. There are some amazing parallels between the coronation of Solomon and the events that take place with Jesus, pointing to the fact that he is the greater than Solomon. He is the king that they've been looking for. He's going to arrive on a mule. He was anointed. He was picked by God. He's coming into the city. People are waving branches. There's a lot of noise. The ground shakes. There's all these parallels meant to take us back to the coronation. All right. So you have to remember also that the people of the day thought that Jesus, the Messiah, excuse me, that the Messiah would be a political figure, right? Going to save them from Rome. How many of you would like to be saved from your current government situation? Maybe some of you, maybe some of you don't. I think we all have seasons where we're like, yeah, it'd be really nice if. Um, some people have left states and gone to other states because they don't like their governments and such, right? We have that freedom. You wouldn't have that freedom in Israel with Rome. They were looking for a political, physical leader to establish Israel like it was when David and Solomon ruled. When David ruled, he united the kingdoms together, and then Solomon ruled and increased the splendor of the kingdom like nobody had ever seen before. They wanted that, again, in Jerusalem with Rome gone. That was their version of the Messiah. They certainly didn't think that the king that would come would take his throne by giving his life. That was not in their picture, which is why Jesus has already three times told the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem and would die and would then be raised from the dead. So as he came into the city and all these things took place, the disciples really were not quite sure what was going on. Well, how do you know that, Mike? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us that, but John does. In John chapter 12, verse 16, it said that, and this is talking about the same passage, by the way, in John. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. 
So when they didn't understand these things, it was a lot of things, but, but even this entry was part of things they did not understand until later, until after Jesus was raised from the dead. So the events caused a real stir. It shook the city of Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people wondering what is going, could this be the time? And the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? The crowd wanted to know, who is Jesus? And I have to say, this is the most important question ever. It's one that every man, woman, and child must wrestle with and think through. Who is Jesus? It's the purpose of our Gospels, to explain who is Jesus. Matter of fact, Luke is very clear that that's the reason he's writing, is to make sure people know who Jesus was and what he did. Was he just a good teacher? Was he just a prophet? Was he just a myth created so that people could live a more moral life? Those are worldviews today of who Jesus is. Or is he actually the Son of God who came to earth to die for the sins of the world? Who is Jesus? And the answer that was given was close, but not quite right. He's a prophet. The crowd still saw Jesus just as a prophet, a man of God like John or Elijah. Um, they kind of got that part right. And we've mentioned many times that Jesus is the better David. He is the better Solomon, the better Aaron, the better Moses. Um, Matthew connected Moses and Elijah with Jesus on the mountain during the transfiguration. You remember that? Jesus went up on a mountain with a few of his disciples. He was changed in front of them. And who appeared on the mountain? Moses and Elijah, right? I want to give you another passage in Deuteronomy to show where we're getting connected here. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, the Lord God will raise up for you, this is the words of Moses, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers, and you must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire any longer so that we will not die. And then the Lord said to me, you have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I commanded him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. They were not only looking for a king, they were looking for a prophet. They were looking for the prophet, like Moses, who would come and speak the words of God to them. Jesus had his Sermon on the Mount, definitely, definitely speaking the word of God. You have heard it said, but I tell you. In other words, let me tell you what God really wants you to know. He was speaking on God's behalf. They're looking for a king, and they're looking for a prophet. And there had not been a prophet in Israel for over 400 years. So to have a man who is now showing up and speaking and is obviously a prophet from God is big news. This would get a stir throughout all of Israel. So he's now been connected to the crowds, not just from Galilee, but to Jerusalem. And according to the timeline, he then leaves goes, he actually goes into the village, into the city, 
He goes up to the temple, but it's late in the day. And then he goes back. And the next day, he goes up to the temple again. This is our second movement, and it's in the temple. When Jesus went into the temple and threw out those buying and selling, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. So again, while Matthew places this directly after the ride into Jerusalem, Mark tells us that this occurred um, on day two of his Jerusalem visit. Um, and not immediately after uh, the, the branches. Here's what Mark says after the branches. He went into Jerusalem, into the temple, and after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. According to Mark, that's what happened after the triumphal entry. He came in on the donkey, he went in, saw the temple, it was late, he went back out to Bethany. The next day he goes in, chronologically, and the events that we're reading in chapter 21 of the temple take place. So basically Jesus sized up the situation um, after arriving on the donkey, and then goes back into Jerusalem the next day. So again, what he's doing on day two is intentional. It's not that he arrived in Jerusalem, saw the temple, was horrified, and immediately took action out of, out of just a, a spontaneous um, reaction. He went in, looked at the temple, went back. The next day he went to the temple, and he was very calculated with what he did at the temple. And you notice a very similar equation to what takes place. At the temple as to what took place in the ride. You have some detailed events, and then you have so that it would be fulfilled what was written about the prophet. And this is the way Matthew works. He's done this a lot of times with us. He wrote in so that what could be fulfilled was the foal, the donkey, and here comes your king, etc. and we got those passages. Now it's, he's going to go into the temple. He up, upends the money changers so that it would be fulfilled, and he gives us that reference again. Um, so imagine this massive crowd following Jesus to the temple, probably expecting him to teach again, um, but instead he just starts flipping over tables. We're talking a large crowd here. Um, he drove out the merchants, and, and this might be hard to picture in your heads. Um, you ever been to a, a large church facility that has like a coffee shop and bookstore? That's not what this is. Okay, you... Imagine the agricultural section of the state fair at your church building. That's what we're talking about. It's huge. The, the temple area was huge. Let me give you some idea of this. Um, I guess my clicker's done. So the temple is the big building up in the top right. Now this part um, to the top left, to the, the northwest, that's part of the new city that wouldn't have existed at the time when Jesus was visiting Jerusalem. So you have just around the temple and then down to the lower part um, is part of, the, that's the city that Jesus would have been coming into. The temple took up one-sixth of the city of Jerusalem. Massive, just massive. Um, the outer part, uh, so you see the Temple Mount, Herod's Temple. It's called Herod's Temple because Herod rebuilt it. It was destroyed once by the Babylonians. Herod rebuilt it. And when he rebuilt it, he made it bigger than the original. And it was actually said in those days, if you've never seen anything magnificent, you haven't seen, if you haven't seen the Solomon's, uh, Herod's temple, you haven't seen anything uh, magnificent. It was the largest structure in the Roman world at that time. You ever been to the uh, amphitheater? <laughs> this was bigger. Um, it measured 
like 1,600 feet on the west, a thousand, little over 1,000 feet on the north, and roughly 1,600 feet on the east, and 900 feet on the south. It's equal to 35 football fields. 35 football fields lined up together. So the outer part, um, you can see the temple is the big structure in the middle, and then you have the outer part. That's the court of the Gentiles. And that's where you would have had the money changers set up, where you have all the animals set up, not inside the temple itself, but around it. But it's a temple complex. It's pretty, pretty spectacular. Um, here, let me give you a little bit more of a close-up of it here. So um, the, temple, the, the, the temple proper is in the middle, and the uh, men and the, the priests would actually go into this, the middle part, but the crowds, the children, um, the Gentiles and stuff would be all in that outer part. And you can see all the columns and colonnades there. You'd have stalls and stalls of animals. Sacrifices were not just birds. You had cattle. I mean, this is like a whole farm scene here going on. You have entire farms worth of animals to be sacrificed. Enough sacrifices for hundreds of thousands of people. Think of that. That's huge. It's loud. It's probably smell horrible, right? It, this is a major, major deal. Um, so when it says that Jesus went into the temple and there were um, people selling and buying in the temple um, and that they were... Uh, exchanging money in the temple. It would be in this temple area. There's a lot of other places they could have done it, but apparently it was only recently in that time when it's believed that Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time, allowed it to happen in the temple. Very controversial decision. Um, so it wasn't an issue that it was wrong to exchange money. They needed to do that. It wasn't an issue that they needed to sell animals for sacrifice. They needed to do that. It's where it was taking place. It was taking place in the temple. And Jesus said, well, my house is meant to be a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves, is what he says. Um, a gathering of God's people for worship was never meant to be a commercial enterprise. It was never meant to be a commercial enterprise. Can there be business that's engaged for God? Absolutely. Should it take place in our area of worships? Probably not. Probably not. There's some great references back to the prophet, which Jesus is quoting again. Um, John even quotes another about zeal for the Lord's temple consuming Jesus. Uh, I want to focus on a few things. First of all, all four Gospels record this particular event. A lot of things that happen in the Gospels only happen in three of them. John is kind of off in his own world. This, happen, this happens to take place in all four of the Gospel accounts. And Matthew refers to the temple as a house of prayer. However, there's more to that quote, and Mark actually adds it a, little, a little bit more to it. So if you look at these two verses side by side, Mark 11:17, along with the Matthew 21:13, you'll notice there's one little piece extra in there, isn't there? My house will be called a house of prayer for who? For all nations. The Messiah was coming as the king to rule for all nations. The temple was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. The Jews had lost sight of this, by the way. They became a very exclusive group that did not want all nations to share what they had. Um, so first of all, there's this reference to the den of thieves. That goes back to Jeremiah 
um, where there's a, a quote about the temple becoming a den of thieves. However, I think it's, it's more significant to notice this all nations thing. Um, it's the second one that mentions that. The Messiah would bring peace to all nations and the temple would be a place of prayer for all nations. So Jesus goes in and says, listen, what you're doing is wrong. You've understood the purpose of the temple. The purpose of the temple was to connect people with God. Jesus is going to refer to himself as a temple very soon. Destroy this temple and in three days it will be rebuilt. The purpose of Jesus coming as king was to bring peace to all nations. The purpose of him coming as a temple, something greater than the temple that's here, was to provide fellowship with the Father, restoration with the Father. All right, so we're going to move on. Confrontation with the religious. The third movement involves confrontation with the religious leaders. Verses 14 through 17. So the blind and lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. And this is again in that Gentile court. Okay? And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus replied, Yes. Have you never read? You, prepare, you have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Then he left them, went out to the city of Bethany, and spent the night there. So, again, the closing in Matthew of a section often, not always, but often, coincides with a change in geography. He shows up in Jerusalem. Matthew puts three different events together, even though it took place over a couple days, and then mentions his leaving again to say this is the end. These three things are connected in Matthew's mind. So the first thing he brings up is the healing. This is the only healing in Jerusalem that Matthew records at all. All the other healings took place outside of Jerusalem in Matthew's gospel. This is the only one that he mentioned. And who does he heal? The blind and the lame, right? It is the Messiah who would bring sight to the blind and make the lame walk. So he was making a very pointed statement as he was there again. His triumphal entry was as the king Messiah, right? His words and what he said were as the prophet Messiah, what he did in the temple to cleanse it was reminding them that he was greater than the temple. Now he's coming in and saying, listen, only the Messiah, because they're going to question his authority. Who gives you the authority to do this? What power do you have? And he's showing to the Jerusalem crowd, like he did the crowds in Galilee and so many other places, that he is the Messiah because he is doing what only the Messiah could do. No man could heal a blind person and give them sight, but only God alone. Um, so first and foremost, it's a message to the crowd that Jesus was the Messiah. Second, it's the continual lesson that Jesus has been teaching all along that the meek will inherit the earth, that the least will be the greatest, that the last will be first. Because he's taking the people who are outcasts in society, the blind, the blind and the lame, who would be lined up around the outer court if they could even get in to the outer court. Matter of fact, David, who we're compared to, actually didn't even want the blind and the lame in the courts. And now that there's this court of the Gentiles, they would line up there and be ignored by everybody, maybe get some, some gifts. And these are the first people that Jesus heals. And then the second group that we have referred to here are the children. This is the third reference to children that we've had. And that if we're going to be part of the kingdom of God, we must have what like a child? 
Humility, not faith. That's right. Humility like a child. And that the kingdom of God belongs to children like this, Jesus would say. Now you have the children calling out and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. Um, and the scribes are, and the religiously, the chief priests are upset. Um, the children see Jesus as the promised one, even though the religious leaders do not. Now, have you heard the word Hosanna before? In the Bible, right? It's like one of those Bible words. How many of you ever had a conversation outside a church where you use the word Hosanna? You have? Okay, fair. You got that one. I was like, wow, you're real nerds, but I get it. Okay, it's good, right? I mean, it's just... Anybody know what it means? God is gracious. Close. The, the, original, the original is believed to come from two Hebrew words that would sound like that when you put together, and it means God saves. Yahweh saves. God saves, okay? So that's where it would come from. By the time we get to the New Testament, it had also just become a, a term of praise or thanks to God. So it had taken on like two different meanings. We have words like that with more than one meaning in it. Um, so it could be interpreted as God saves or as just praise um, to God for saving, for what he's done. Um, here's, a, here's an example. This is where it comes from. Uh, and what's actually being quoted in our passage. It comes from Psalm 118. It said, uh, did I get the right verse? That looks like the wrong verse. Um, I'll, so I'll read it to you. Pay no attention to that verse. Uh, Psalm 118.25 says this, Lord, save us. Is that what you have in your Bibles, right? Psalm 118. You're all looking. You're checking me on this stuff, right? Psalm 118.25 says, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So this is the direct quote that Matthew gave us in this last part. Again, you see the formula. There's actions that are performed, and there's a prophet or some Old Testament passages that are referenced. That happened with the entry to Jerusalem. It happened with the overturning of the tables in the, of the temple. And now it happens with the children praising God. They're saying these things. Psalm 118, 25, and 26. Lord, save us. Hosanna. That's the word, the two words, Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. So the, the crowds in the street are calling this out. And then after the healing in the temple, the children are calling it out. Notice that the blind and the lame recognize Jesus as the Son of God, the one sent from God. The children recognize Jesus as a man sent from God. While they both might not totally understand all of what that is, they see what he is doing, and they see God in it. Matthew recorded that the chief priests and the scribes saw the wondrous things, the wonderful things that Jesus was doing. And they became upset. They saw the same things that the children saw, that the blind saw, that the lame saw. And instead of acknowledging God in it and praising God for it, they became indignant. They were truly the blind ones with lame faith. 
So Jesus confronted them with scripture, of course. And the verse that Jesus referenced was very bold. And this is fantastic. So Jesus says, haven't you read your, haven't you read your scriptures? Like, oh, really? This is, he's done this to them before. Jesus is not trying to make friends in Jerusalem. He shared with us three times, I'm coming into Jerusalem to die. He even told us the last time that he's going to die at the hands of the Romans, but after being condemned by the Sanhedrin, by the chief priests and the elders, the Pharisees, the scribes. He's not trying to make friends with them at this point. And he quotes a passage from Psalm 8, which was read for us this morning. Thank you for doing that. Psalm 8, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established your stronghold, your stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. So, first of all, you have Yahweh, our Lord. Yahweh being the name of God. When you see Lord in the all caps, it's Yahweh, the name of God. Yahweh, our God, how, magnif how magnificent is your name. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold. When Jesus says that, haven't you read that from the mouths of infants and babes? He is declaring equality with Yahweh. Because this verse is specific about the praise belonging to Yahweh. He is not hiding anything. The days of him saying, who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Messiah. Don't tell anybody. Those days are over. The entrance to Jerusalem, the hidden kingdom has disappeared. The hidden message about who he is is gone. Now it's about proclaiming boldly who he is and what he has come to do. That has changed. After three years of keeping things hidden, go and tell no one. Go and tell no one. Now, He's declaring through his actions and through the prophets who he is. The, also, the psalm also states that the reason God establishes throng, his stronghold and prays through children is because of the adversaries, the enemies, the avengers. So, so if the children are praising Yahweh, which group would these chief priests and scribes be here? The adversaries the enemies, the avengers. Jesus is not only declaring his deity, he is calling out the religious leaders as the enemies of God. This is like something that they would immediately get as soon as he referenced this passage, that they would then be the enemies. <laughs> so Jesus so far has stolen the crowds from the religious leaders, caused a major scene at the temple, kicking out the money changers, and he's enraged the religious leaders by calling them enemies. And the polarization that happens, um, that follows, is the same polarization we've seen all throughout the gospel, but it's coming to a climax. The, the veil of Jesus' identity has come off, and there's no choice now except to make a choice. Who is Jesus? That is still the question. Who is Jesus, and how will you react to him? How will you respond to him? Either you accept that he is who he is, which leads you to no other choice but to surrender your life because he gave his for you. Or you pretend that he's not who he is and you ignore that reality. 
and you choose instead to become the enemy of God. You either believe or you oppose. This is true of everyone who's heard the message of the Son of God. You do choose and you must choose. And even to ignore or to reject is to oppose. Once you have heard something, you have to either respond to it positively or negatively. You either accept it or you reject it. I believe that many, if not all of you in this room, have chosen to accept it. And I'm so grateful for that. So I guess my first question as we wrap up, as we look at these passages, Jesus came into the city and he made some very specific, calculated um, events and words that were meant to point out that he is what was promised all throughout the Old Testament, that he has come to do the will of God to establish God's kingdom on earth and that it's about to get very real what that's going to look like in the week to come. And the question that he's going to make everybody ask is, who is Jesus and how will you respond to him? So my first question is, who do you believe Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is, really? When you're going through those hard times and you doubt what God is doing, who do you believe Jesus is, really? Many of those that followed Jesus only followed him for earthly reasons. <laughs> they, wanted, they wanted to be healed from some problem or affliction, or they wanted to be freed from some oppressor like Rome. So I guess my final question is, why do you turn to God? Why do you turn to Jesus? Many of the people followed Jesus because he was a prophet, because he did great things, because he brought them a better life and hope for a better life. But that really wasn't the ultimate goal of Jesus, was it? Just like the disciples missed the mark, and the crowds missed the mark, thinking Jesus would come establish a physical kingdom on this earth, we spend so much time seeking Jesus as the healer of the physical, as the provider of the material, and yet his kingdom is not of this world, and we're to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven and not on earth, and we're to be focused on the things of the kingdom of God and seeking them first, and then the rest of the stuff is just taken care of. Jesus came not to provide for our material needs, but to provide something that we could not provide on our own, to save you and me from our sins, from the punishment we deserve. And this goes back to the very beginning of the gospel, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And it says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will provide all of the things that you need and heal you from every infirmity. Right? Isn't that what Jesus means? No. You will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the one that God sent to save people like you and me, if we'll accept him as Lord. And it's also a reminder that once we're a part of his kingdom, it was never meant, this passage reminds us, it was never meant to be an exclusive club. God's people were meant to be the instruments that he uses to announce peace and hope to the nations. I was 
thinking this last week as I was around some beloved saints, people who have served God on the mission field and in pastorates for years and years and years, and now they are actually retiring, and their idea of retiring is studying scriptures and hanging out together and praying for other missionaries. It's a beautiful thing. And a phrase that I heard a lot was, you know, come quickly, Jesus. Have you ever heard that statement before? You know? Have you ever said it before? Right? I have too. I actually came under some conviction this last week. Because for me to want Jesus to come quickly is very selfish. <laughs> if God is not slow concerning his promise, as, mon- as some men count slowness, but is patient, not wanting any to perish, but that all should come to repentance, then I think we should want Jesus to wait as long as possible to come back so that we can share the good news with as many as possible. Yes, I want to be free from the troubles of this life, but it's not about this life. It's not about this kingdom. It's about God's kingdom. It's about people knowing him, accepting the Messiah, and being freed from the punishment of their sins to be restored back to their Father. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for this time together in your word. Thank you for all the ways that you have provided for us. Lord, we get so distracted (laughs) with the physical things. It's so easy for us to follow you for the, the things that we need. And though we don't look at it that way, Our prayers sometimes indicate that. Father, help us to seek you. Help us to seek our Savior because of our need for not just forgiveness of sins, but for everything in life. Father, we pray that that your name would be lifted high because of us. That your kingdom and your kingdom work would be accomplished in our communities because we followed you. That we would trust you for everything, including our daily needs, but that you would teach us how to go out in grace to the nations and to share the truth of your love with them. Father, we pray that for as long as you tarry, that you would help us to be faithful kingdom messengers and help us to make sure that we're seeking you with our whole hearts and undivided. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.